Welcome to Positive Talk Radio. Our goal is simple, to explore evolving ideas one conversation at a time. So stay with us as right now we present. I'm very fortunate we get to have another talk with a great human being and a, and a really good author. And he's written the book that's entitled A Theology for the Rest of Us. And his name is Arthur Yavelberg. And young man, how are you this fine day? Uh, I'm fine. I'm much better now that I'm on your program. It's nice to see you. <laughs> it's, it's awesome to see you because, you know, I, I really, your book really resonates with me because I think that we all need to, well, we don't need to do anything, but it would be a great choice if we wanted to discover what we really believed in about ourselves and about the great beyond and all of that stuff and not take anybody else's word for it. Um, and that's kind of the, the message behind the book, isn't it? It is. And in fact, I was thinking about it after we spoke and even your presence, even now, um, Alan Watts has this line that um, if you enjoy what you do, you never work a day in your life. And, you know, there's an enthusiasm and a laughter that comes out when you talk and ask questions and interview guests and all those kinds of things that's, that say to me, this is not something external. This isn't something you think you should do or are obligated to do. It comes from somewhere within you. And um, basically what the book is about is identifying what that is. The Hindus say that that which you are seeking is causing you to seek, that it's really internal and is looking for the opportunity to express itself. And in, in, in the West in particular, you know, in, 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 you know you've, we've all heard the language like idle hands are the devil's playthings and you have to sacrifice and you have to work hard and you know you work hard and you play later and all those kinds of things there's this dichotomy between what we enjoy and and what we have to do to make a living and support our families and that kind of stuff the east in general has a much more integrated approach than that that the goal is not it's not like in a freudian sense we have this id that is primal and, and just wants to do whatever it wants to do on impulse and rape and pillage and steal and have a good time and has to be controlled by the society in, in um, imposed superego so that we have the kind of control that's necessary in order to be productive and successful human beings. In the East, it's much more that we have a fundamental nature it reminds me of the story about Michelangelo and his David, the statue, famous statue of David, where it was this block of marble and it was twisted. It was a beautiful piece of marble, but it was twisted in the middle. And um, it, everybody kind of gave up on it because even though it was a great piece of marble, you couldn't do anything because it was twisted and you'd have to break it. And, you know, statues ideally are made from a single piece. So, Michelangelo looked at this and instead of discarding it because it was twisted in the middle, he used the, mar the twist in the marble for the waist. And if you look at the statue of David carefully, you see that there, that twist in the marble is there. So, what, so they asked Michelangelo about it and his story is, is that his attitude towards sculpture is not that he has an idea 
that he's imposing on the marble. Rather, there's a sculpture within the marble and it's his role to release it, to allow it to manifest itself. That's the Eastern approach, basically, that we all have a nature. We all have this unique divine um, attributes or you know whatever it is. And what we want to do is to identify it and find ways of expressing it. If we do that, we can both work, be productive, and be happy at the same time. So, like you know, it's a long way to get back to the original point. That's what I feel like you've done. You know, when I hear your voice and the laughter and your enthusiasm, I know it took a while to get to the point where you could host a program like this and do this stuff. But what you've done is basically found a way to identify what it is you really want to do and you do it and you're happy doing it, which is great. The saddest stories are those people who dedicate their whole lives to working at things that they don't want to do. And yet when they're time to retire, they're too broken down to be able to enjoy what's supposed to be their time. The, what most people stay at that level, especially in the West, some people reach the point where they are able to identify their talents and skills and things like that in ways that make them happy and productive. The next step, which is a very natural step and you get there, great. You don't get there, you'll do it some other time, is to put that in the context of a, a spiritual divine you know, context in which people realize that this isn't just me identifying what I like to do and do well, but also that this is part of some kind of a divine plan. And I, I don't want it to sound, you know, too woo-woo or anything like that. You know, whatever it is, people have talents and passions and things like that, and they are created for a reason. And the more we are able to identify what makes us happy, we're able to manifest what it is that the divine wants us to do. And, you know, that's why we feel good. People get depressed. People get frustrated when they do, when they follow words like should or sacrifice, you know, this whole notion of sacrifice, you know, I really want to do X, but I'm going to do Y because that's what's really important. And that's what's valuable to get past that, to get into a, a context where it's not that God has given you a cross to bear, to use that kind of language. Rather, God has given us all the opportunity to make a contribution. And guess what? He wants us to use it. You know, we can have questions and, you know, challenges and all kinds of things. But no, it's part of the divine plan to be able to do what we do well and enjoy doing it. That's a good thing. And anyway, that's the book is is to put those individual passions and desires in a in a context that's more spiritual and rational. You know, you don't have to you know speak in a funny accent or wear robes or you know go to school for forever. You know, it, it, it's it's you can be rational. You can believe in the theory of evolution. You can accept principles of quantum mechanics and science and all this kind of stuff and still realize that the very fact that the universe works according to scientific laws is itself sign of uh, intelligence, rationality. 
It's not science versus religion. It's because of science that we have a rational basis for believing in a spiritual realm. One of the big problems that materialists have who deny the whole spiritual realm is that they have no satisfactory answer for where rationality comes from. If everything is, is the result of arbitrary, accidental, capricious forces just happening to come together, well, that's fine, except the results of arbitrary, capricious, accidental comings together are, guess what? Accidents, right? You throw up a bunch of metal up in the air and it just falls. Okay, it falls. It falls at random and this piece goes here and that piece goes there. You don't throw up a bunch of metal up into the air and have it come down as a car. You know, it, it just doesn't work that way. You know, so the fact nope, that the universe works according to scientific principles is not anti-spiritual. It opens the door to spirituality. And the more people realize that they don't have to choose between rationality and spirituality, they can open that door for themselves and give themselves permission to explore this spiritual realm. See, I agree with you 3 billion percent because it's all connected. There is, you know, there are, um, there are religious people and, and, and different folks of that, are thinking about this and they put it into two different contexts. They put it into our human self and what we have going on here. And then somewhere out there in the newbie is someplace is a spiritual self. And that is not connected necessarily to what we are doing here. My premise is it's all connected. We are spirit. We are, um, we are spiritual beings having a human experience and it's all connected together. And if you, decide you want to play in that realm you can you don't have to you can decide that you're you're just gonna i have a as a matter of fact i have a close relative he's a son of mine who says dad when you're dead you're dead and i said no i don't think that's true and he said what you can't prove otherwise and i said no but but i don't want to live in that realm i don't want to live in the place that says um when i'm dead i'm dead i i and I believe in spirituality and I believe that we are all connected and I believe that we are all one. And I, and I just applaud your book because it really opens up a lot of thought patterns that a lot of people don't, don't think about. Or or are afraid to think about because when a lot of people think of spirituality, you know, they think of, like I say, freaks, you know, people who are, not of the real world, you know, you know, they do seances and they make fun of, you know, say Shirley MacLaine or Dan Warwick or any of these personalities that, and, and basically it's out of the fear. They, they, they don't want to be crazy. They, they, they don't want to come across as people who are out there somehow. And I think that's where that permission comes in in terms of allowing ourselves at least the opportunity to explore something that's already nagging at us. As Soren Kierkegaard, great name to drop at a cocktail party, you want to impress people and stuff like that. He talks about, you know, a leap of faith. He's a religious existentialist. But basically he says, he writes his book. He doesn't call his book, you know, being a freak or, you know, there will be pie in the sky when you die. He calls his book a fear and trembling. He says, basically, look, everybody has this sense 
that there's something else, that there's something within them that cannot be explained by the usual things that you talk about during the day. But at three o'clock in the morning, when you are thinking about things and staying awake and those and that kind of thing, you start to realize that there's a, a, a hunger for something that not only explains, because explains is, is a little bit too cognitive, but that, that feels right, that resonates in a, in a very deep way. Now your son, he wants to believe that when he's dead, he's dead. Um, fine, I mean, that, that, that's where he is. And, and as, I, as I laugh, you know, at the end of the day, we'll all find out. <laughs> that's exactly right. You know, the, 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 the play will, will play itself out. But a lot of things in this rational material world don't make sense if all we have is a rational material world. To understand the rational material world rationally requires an, a, a, at least a perception or a, at least an openness to the possibility the answers are not all in the rational material world. There has to be something else working behind the scenes. And I, I wholeheartedly agree with that and believe it totally. Because, you know, as, as you know, you and I have both been on the planet a while, I do have to say. And as you look back at, uh, at least I do, as I look back at all the things that I've done, I was on a podcast earlier today, and they listed all the jobs that I'd done uh, in, in the course of my life. And so he got done with that. And, and, and he said, you've done a lot. And I said, yeah, it looks like I can't keep a job, doesn't it? And, uh, but I have done all those things and they have been in an orderly transition from one to the other, uh, to the other, so that I would gain the experience that I needed to be able to do what I'm doing now. Um, and it was all, it was all by, in my opinion, it was all by divine, uh, intervention and divine guidance that I would do go from one to the other, to the other. And I would meet this person at the right time. And I would have a, a moment here where it would change the direction of my life to, for a degree to do something else. It's all, if you look at it and I, I'm going to ask you if yours is, if, and when you look, reflect back, if yours is kind of in the same thing it's gone from one thing to the other and it's been a real orderly transition yeah i i, I don't know about orderly uh, alan watts says that you know when he flies in an airplane you know he goes across say um, mountain ranges or sees clouds and things like that and there are no straight lines when he it's only when he travels over a city or farmland or things like that that's when he sees all the string uh the straight lines so he says Humanity, people think in terms of lines and orderly and that kind of stuff. Nature is not so orderly. Rivers are very seldom straight. They go in and out and, you know, canyons form and it's much more irregular. But the perspective changes so that, you know, in the West, you know, it's, it's very interesting. In the West, people talk a lot about mistakes and successes. You know, when I did what I wanted to do, it was successful. And when I didn't do what I wanted to do, or it was, or I failed at it. I tried and it didn't work out. In, in, in the East, it's, it's, it's a much more integrated approach to be able to look back and say something was disappointed 
disappointing or painful or anything like that, as opposed to being seen as negative, it's seen as this is a learning experience. This is pointing me in the right direction so that I can ultimately achieve the kinds of goals I want to meet. So if you look at all of our experiences that way, there are no failures and there are no successes. They're all steps going in the right direction. The Taoists say, you know, it took all of it to get you to where you are today. And today is where you need to be in order to go where you need to go tomorrow. As opposed to, I took a wrong turn. I took two steps backwards. You know, every every sunny day does not have a dark cloud in it. it, it it's much easier to, it's much healthier to look at things in this more integrated fashion. And even psychologists will say, the healthiest personalities are not divided personalities where they they think and feel this, but they do and act that because of some kind of compulsion or because something they've been taught or anything like that. An integrated personality is able to look at the whole picture and bring it all together in a way that not only makes sense, but also believes that the universe is not apathetic, but is actually out there to help us in, in ways that we may not imagine. So God works, right? I talk about this in the book and I, I like to play chess a lot. So, so I use the example and I, I really do believe it. So Magnus Carlsen is the world chess champion. He's the best chess player in the world, et cetera, et cetera. I sit down and I play a game with Magnus Carlsen and fine, I'm gonna lose, okay? But, and, and this is the key that, that people overlook, this business of losing and, and what does it mean? And Arthur, if you know you're going to lose, you didn't have free will, right? You were going to lose. Why bother playing the game? The point is, is that even Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player in the world, has no idea what kind of moves I'm going to make. He knows the moves he would make, but he's Magnus Carlsen. He's not me. I'm going to make the kind of moves I want to make that are consistent with my personality and my upbringing and all that kind of stuff. Ultimately, Magnus Carlsen is going to guide the game in such a way that he's going to make sure the result is the result he wants because he's going to be able to use my moves in a way that is going to make that happen. Well, guess what? You look at the Bible and you see the story of Joseph. I don't know how familiar your audience is with the story of Joseph. Joseph is the favorite son of Jacob in the book of Genesis. Yep. And he has all these dreams. And he's Jacob's favorite son. And he's going to be wonderful, great, and all these kinds of things. And guess what? His sons are jealous. They have him sold into slavery where he's taken into Egypt. And they tell his father he was killed by animals. So the father is distraught. This guy who's supposed to be this, you know, diviner of dreams and all these kinds of things has been sold into slavery. And, you know, some prophecy, you know, this is a wonderful story, ends up as the disaster. Well, guess what? Because he's in Egypt, through interpreting dreams and things like that, he works his way up so that he becomes a, a, a chief advisor to the pharaoh. Pharaoh has these dreams of seven years of good times and seven years of bad times. Because Joseph understands these dreams, he knows, guess what? You got to stock up during the good years because the bad years are coming. And because of that, Egypt becomes a big deal. The sons back in Israel 
they're starving because there's a drought during these seven years. The only place that has food is Egypt. The sons have to go back into Egypt and beg, basically beg to buy food there. Who's there waiting for him? It's Joseph. And he's looking at them and they don't recognize him. He recognizes them. Now, this is a perfect opportunity. You know, vengeance is mine, <laughs> thus saith the Lord. This is a perfect opportunity for him to, you know, get his way. And I told you so. And I, now it's your turn because I'm, I'm now in power. It's not what he says. What Joseph says when he finally reveals who he is, is he says, look, I know you meant to do me evil, but God knew better. He took what you intended to do for evil and turned it into good. Because had you not sold me into slavery, I would not have been in Egypt at the time to interpret those dreams to make sure Egypt became this you know, basket of, of food at this time of drought so that everybody else could benefit. The point is, both with Magnus Carlson and in the Bible with the story of Joseph, and the Hindus have similar stories, at any particular point in time, you never know what's going on, but you can be sure that something is going on and that only is for everybody's benefit, no matter how bad it looks or how temporary it's going to be. Once you believe that, there's no room for regrets. There's no room for remorse. Things are unpleasant. You know, as uh, uh, the Dalai Lama says, uh, pain is inevitable. Suffering is option, optional. You Things are going to happen that are painful, unpleasant, but suffering implies an emotional reaction that suggests that things should be different than they are. Yeah, not if you believe that there's a divine context in which all this stuff is going on. Yeah, something else is going on. So I sit down with Magnus Carlsen, play a game of chess. He makes a move. I have no clue why he's making it but I'm sure he has a reason <laughs> and it's going to be to get what he wants. And that's why you're there. And that's why we're talking and in some way, shape or form, it all fits into this. And that's my attitude toward the book, by the way, I wrote the book because I wanted to write the book. I wrote the book and I'll go on podcasts or, I'll, you know, write articles and things like that. And I trust, you know, Catholics would call it the Holy spirit and Taoists in China would call it the Tao and whatever. You know what? The Holy Spirit or the Tao or whatever will use the book as it sees fit. We're not. You know, I did yep. what I needed to do. Whatever happens, that happens. Donovan McNabb with the Eagles used to say, it doesn't matter win or lose, you have to leave it all out on the field. I, I believe that. The saddest words this you hear are people who are retired or on their deathbeds and things like that. And they say things like, you know what? I had a chance and I didn't take it. Yeah, you can't, you can't. You, it's, it, knowing that that day is going to come should change the way we act when we have the opportunity to act. So to get back to your question, in my life, absolutely. Out of the blue, I had the opportunity to go to Singapore to work for two years, met all kinds of different people, was able to visit in Angkor Wat in Cambodia. And you, remember who you're talking to. I'm, I'm no genius or you know, a charismatic personality. My idea of excitement at the beginning of the day, should I wear a dark gray shirt or a light gray shirt? That's my idea of, wow, I got to make a choice. Out of the blue, somebody as, as, as conservative and risk averse as me has the opportunity to, to work two years in Singapore. I told you, you know, we just had the opportunity 
to go to Egypt, right? We just returned from Egypt yeah. a couple of weeks ago. Unbelievable. Again, me. I don't speak Arabic. Probably can't drink the water. I'm going to have to get shots. I'm going to have to buy hiking shoes. It's too hard. It's too far. It's this and that. We literally get this thing in the mail that there's overseas adventures travel. The Kathy, my partner, went on a trip with her sister to Africa and had a wonderful time. And they do everything. Arthur, even you can go on a trip like this and not have to worry and be anxious. Are they going to pick me up? Are we going to get lost? Do we have to take a cab? All this kind of nonsense. Even you can go on a tour like this and it will be fine. And then it's half price. I mean, it's literally half price of what it is. So, you know, my typical way, pros and cons, there's this risk and that and all this kind of thing. Fine, let's do it. And it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. We go, we have a wonderful experience. There's something, I felt like I was in a dream. We've all seen pictures of pyramids on TV and TV shows, or the Sphinx and all that stuff. To actually be there and looking at it, it was like I was looking at myself on television. It was just weird. You know, and I would submit to you, Arthur, that because now that that is actually a really good metaphor, because when you got that invitation in the mail, you had a choice. You right. could throw it away, you could disregard it, or you could read it. And you chose actively that you were going to read it, which led to you going and having this grand adventure. Now, if you were of a different mindset, you might have just said, ah, nah, it's just a salesman trying to sell me something, throw it away in the trash, and you would not have had the experience that you were destined to have. Yeah, the only thing I would quibble about, it's not a mindset. It's, it's, it's an emotional thing where we have to, you know, people have a mistaken, when they talk about bravery and courage and things like that, I think a lot of people have the sense that to be brave and courageous is to not have fear. To really understand what it means to be courageous means to have fear. And probably yeah. the most courageous people are the most fearful because they have the most to overcome. I don't know how many people, again, we get so many messages from society and sometimes from parents and all kinds of things to the effect of you have to fit in. You know, our DNA in many ways is programmed from evolution to survive. People who took chances basically died. (laughs) Oh, Oh, I hear this noise in the bushes. Maybe it's a tiger or maybe it's nothing. Let me go look. And most of the people who went and looked got killed. Okay, so it's part of our DNA and certainly part of our upbringing is to conform. Why do we go to school? Why do we go to college in order to become productive members of society, you know, raise a family, go through the room, et cetera, et cetera. Nevertheless, despite our DNA, and despite, despite all the educational programming, there is something in us that... Yeah, it wants something else. It wants something unique to us, and it wants to explore it. That's when the choice comes in. To what extent are we prepared to honor that? And to what extent are we prepared to say, yeah, I'm not going to do that.
you know, in terms of upbringing, there was a time when I would, my father was in the Air Force. And what did that mean as a practical matter? Every two years, he went overseas. And every and, and, and when the two years when he was stationed in the States, we would live with him wherever the base was, you know, Kinchlow Air Force in, base in Michigan, all these different places. Well, I got to tell you, you move every two years growing up, there's no chance to develop any kind of um, community roots. I remember sitting in high school, I was sitting with this uh, with a girlfriend at the time and she looks out on the front lawn and there's this tree there, it's a huge tree. And she goes, I remember when that tree was planted. I said, I, I I don't have twigs that I remember when they were where they were planted. You know, there was you know, and I remember being impressed. I still remember it now that the kinds there are lots of people who talk about. Well, you know, I hate where I live, but this is where I grew up, and I have roots here. Roots is a word that comes up all the time. You know, I have roots here. I have connections here. I have to uproot in order to go to someplace where I would really like to go. So this, this continuous lifestyle that I grew up with, I always saw as a disadvantage. You know, I'd move into a school community where people have been friends for years and years and they had their relationships and I was the new kid. So by and large, um, <laughs> social interaction was not one of my fortes. That's a bad thing, it was lonely, this and that. Well, now looking back, I realized, well, guess what? Because, or at least helping you to have the freedom to explore new opportunities came from that lack of roots, that you were able to develop a sense of resiliency and flexibility. You know, there wasn't so much risk. What's the big deal? You moved? We always moved. So that's, that's, that's part of the ability to break away I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I, I meet as part of the book, you know, fundamentalists in, in different religions, East and West, that have to be one or the other. And what do they say? I don't know what I would do elsewhere. I'm not happy where I am. I don't even believe most of the stuff that they've been telling us in the synagogue or the temple or whatever. But where would I go? And I say, you can go anywhere. You, you know, you've got shoes. You know, put on a pair of shoes and walk. You know, if you're really not happy, and worse, what are you going to do on your deathbed, looking back and saying, "I spent my entire life in this place where I didn't belong. I, I, I didn't fit in, and I and there was part of me that knew it, but I couldn't get myself to leave because of what it meant." And I say. But don't you see, by staying, you are doing to yourself worse than anything that could possibly happen if you leave. At least if you leave, you have a shot at something better. And they go, no, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. A lot of people say that. The grass is not always browner on the other side. It could be better. Uh, but yeah. you have to take the chance. I had a wise uh, personnel director one time who told me, because we were having a conversation about uh, this job or that job, and he said, you know, a lot of people say the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. No, I disagree with that. The grass is greenest where you water it. Where you water it. That's and true. 
and so therefore so his whole premise was if you what doesn't matter what you're doing if you like what you're doing you do the best job that you can you do, and and you really enjoy it you will be successful i i think that's true at, at the very least you have the best chance for success people who have regrets who um squash or try to squash what they really want to do basically are, are up at the plate with one hand tied behind their backs trying to bat so you're divided against yourself right the house divided against itself cannot stand said lincoln and he was absolutely right to have any shot at all you have to use all your resources all your energy you can't have all your energy if there's a significant part of you that thinks yeah, I shouldn't be doing this. I mean, I really shouldn't be doing this. I'm not happy doing this. Um, you always change a losing game. And at the very least, like I say, at the end of the day, if things don't work out the way you want them to work out, you gave it your best shot. That's all you can do. Yeah. It's one of the reasons, by the way, I believe in reincarnation. This business of one and done, it, it just doesn't make sense to me. If the universe is as beneficent as I think it is and as supportive as it is there's no way you get it's one and done somebody lives you know dies as a four-year-old and is going to go to heaven for eternity and somebody's a 90 year, year old and is going to go to heaven for eternity it makes absolutely no sense to me the, the universe cannot be rational if it's a one and done kind of thing but well, if you if, if you have reincarnation, it's not one and done. You get multiple chances, one lifetime to the next, just like, you know, a first grader is not a failed fourth grader. A first grader is a first grader, and eventually you'll get to fourth grade, however long it takes. Exactly. Now, I, as an example, Arthur, you are a gentleman and have been on this planet for a while as a man. If you, this was a one and done, you have no idea what it's like to be a woman, as an example. Or what it's like to be a, a black man in, in a different culture or an Asian person or the different things, the different value structures and where it all works. And so you wouldn't have a well-rounded background for you to get to the next level for your educational purposes. You know, and that's where the moral basis for spiritual compassion comes from. You know, Buddhists talk in, in, in the West, this whole business of be a good person, why? So you get to go to heaven. It's like, I, I want to steal from people. I want to hurt people. I want to take what they have, but I'm not going to because it's going to keep me from getting this reward in heaven afterwards. The, it, Buddhists look at it completely different. Spiritually, the meme is, you know, you become enlightened, you become one with the universe. And that sounds so grandiose and all the rest of it. But in practical, ethical terms, think in terms of what a pickpocket does, right? A pickpocket, in Western terminology, sees something that somebody else has, wants it, and takes it from them. Now I have something I didn't have before. And in Eastern context, what is a pickpocket? A pickpocket is somebody who reaches into his own pants and picks his own pocket. What does he gain? If you are one with the universe, you recognize that you have a kinship with everything else that exists. There's nothing to steal, not because it's immoral. You already have it. You're already in connection with it. 
you know, it's not like, you know, if your foot hurts, your hand isn't jealous because your foot hurts and is getting attention. Your hand is happy for your foot to feel better. You know, you, you take pleasure and you can feel a genuine compassion for other people. Now, what does it take for us to get there? Just like you said, you know, if you're a man, you have to become sensitized to what it means to be a woman. If you're black, you have to be sensitized to be white. White, you have to be sensitized to be black. In other words, we have to get past these kinds of limitations and lines that separate us and think more in terms of what unifies us. It, 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 one of the goals of team sports is for people to realize that if other team members are successful, we're all successful. You know, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats, as opposed to the spirit that says it's about me. You know, I, um, I, I just, you know, in basketball, I don't know how many, again, being on the planet a long time, the difference between Bill Russell and Will Chamberlain, Will Chamberlain probably just in terms of sheer physical talent and certainly size was bigger than Bill Russell. Bill yes. Russell's the one who won many more national titles in basketball. I believe a lot. Why? Because Bill Russell, somebody, I think it was Michael Jordan or somebody like that said it pretty recently, because Bill Russell knew how to make the other players around him better, as opposed to Will Chamberlain, who sets a record for 100 points in a game. Yeah, Bill Russell is not going to score 100 points in a game, but he'll make sure that the point guard is going to get the kind of plays he's going to need to make. And he's going to be able to make the people around him that much better. That's a whole difference of approach. Yep. He took, he did the dirty work. He uh, got rebounds and, and fed it to the shooters and, and he uh, uh, blocked shots and to protect, protected his. So he played defense and got rebounds. That was his key to success. But yeah, he was a big player. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think I told you this. I was in school administration for the longest period of time. And I was, I was dismayed at the number of administrators, heads of school and things like that, who were basically threatened by people below them who were competent, who were really, really good. And my attitude was always, if I've got people working for me who are really, really good, I don't have to be so good. <laughs> they can be great. And I'll get the benefit from a successful school and this and that. A lot of administrators would see people under them and they would be suspicious that they were after their jobs or they're going to do this or they're going to do that. They're going to make them look bad because they want, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I'm thinking, who has gold and treats it like tin? You know, as a, you know, these are good things, but you have to be able to get past the mindset that it's about me. It really is about us. So when you think about it, the Jewish Talmud has a great story. Uh, there are people in a rowboat, and this guy starts drilling a hole in the bottom of the boat under his seat. And people start yelling at him, you know, what, what are you doing? And he goes, why are you so angry? I'm just drilling under my seat. Okay, but you drill under your seat, but the whole boat's going to sink. So, you know, if, if we didn't, trust me, there are times I'll look at the news or whatever. I'm glad I'm old because, you know, people keep thinking in terms of, you know, climate change and all this kind of stuff. And, oh, yeah, I can build these factories and pump all the smoke into the air in New England. 
and it's not going to bother me. You know, nothing's going to happen. Well, guess what? The planet goes up. The planet's going to go up. I don't hope. <laughs> I hope I'm not here as man, woman, black, white, whatever. I hope I'm not here to see it. Because this kind of individual thinking that doesn't have the whole context of the world in mind, it's just like you know your fist beating onto your foot and causing the foot pain and taking pleasure out of it. I mean, that's called masochism. That's a disease. That's not something to strive for as an economy or as a you know world community. Well, and I, I, I tend to think that uh, because the world is getting, I don't know if you've noticed, but because of the internet and communications and technology, the, the world is getting smaller. You, it's uh, we now are able to in World War One. We weren't able to, or World War Two. We can now get in real time exactly what's going on in Russia and in uh, the Ukraine, and so there isn't that delay anymore. So the more that we are getting real time with stuff, I think it's going to be changing more and more minds because people don't want to. In the olden days, Ukraine was way over there, and it didn't matter to us. Right. Now it's in our living room. It's, it's right. right there every day, and we're, we can see it. And I think that it's going to change how we view the world and our role in it. And at least that's what I'm hoping for. Well, I, I hope you're right. But the Taoists have this thing about power of any kind being neutral. So nuclear power, for example, nuclear power is is a good thing or a bad thing and the answer in Taoism is always well it depends Dao, nuclear power can be used to cheaply provide energy that can light up whole cities or nuclear power can be used to um, destroy the entire world now the more power the more potential on both sides of the spectrum so you're right the ukraine is in our living rooms uh, right today and we know what's happening right at the minute. The downside is that there's this guy in North Korea, Kim Jong-un, who, who 100 years ago during World War I, to use your example, could do whatever he wanted in North Korea. But the impact by and large would have been in North Korea, maybe South Korea, but it's localized in that place. Well, right. guess what? Kim Jong-un in North Korea launches a missile attack against Japan or South Korea or whatever. And it's going to be all over the place. There was a time when um, nuclear uh, weapons were confined to a couple of countries, right? United States, China, and Russia, uh, probably Israel. Nobody likes to say it, but it's true. Now there are nuclear weapons all over the place. So some lunatic where Iran, for example, gets it into his head that he wants to meet these 70 virgins earlier, and he's going to get some kind of a geometric uh, expansion of that if he nukes the whole world of infidels he can do it right and during world war one the the potential impact was much less you're right i agree good was also much less but everything is like this you, you can you can water this side of the fence or you can water the grass on that side of the fence but whichever side you water, all of a sudden the stakes have gotten very, very high. And um, 
And I'm hopeful one of one of either two things are going to happen. We are going to we're going to end the world, or we're going to step back from the brink and recognize that, and we're not going to allow people like the emperor of uh, of Russia to do what he's doing anymore to affect other people, and we are going to say no. Uh, yeah. And hopefully, you know, but but maybe, but he, I mean, he's got a lot of he's got a lot of weaponry. Well, I think that's very intimidating. You know, again, I think there are people who would want to be more aggressive in saying no to a Putin in, in Russia, except for the fact that they know he's got nuclear weapons. I mean, why don't they, you think people tell North Korea to sit out and shut up? It's for the same reason. They're afraid as to what they might do. Um, there was a time when people didn't have the potential for damage that people have now and and this you know everybody says after the fact that you know what there are things like war crimes and you know people should stand up and why didn't people stop hitler and all those kinds of things and what they forget is that they didn't because they were afraid you know, they had these weapons. I mean, how many, you know, United talk about the Ukraine, for example. The people who are the real heroes in this whole Ukraine thing, besides the Ukrainians themselves, I don't want to belittle that, are those people in Europe who have had to readjust their entire economies in order to deal with the fact of these, you know, these um, boycotts of, of, of Russia. The United States has a pretty easy... You know, we haven't had to change what we do in terms of gasoline or natural gas or anything like that. And, oh, guess what? And we're the ones who, you know, I, I, I talk about all these different things. But our lives are not on the line. If our lines, if, 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 our, if our gasoline went up the way they do in, in Europe, if we were paying... 12 13 dollars a gallon for gasoline because of what we were doing in ukraine my guess is we wouldn't be so morally upright and all that goes with that these economies are going through some real strains and it's easy for us to 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 judge what should be done you know war crime these things happen all the time and it's easy to talk after the fact but during and I don't know, you know, it's easy for me to talk here. I am sitting very comfortably having a nice talk with you. There's sun shining outside here in Tucson. It's beautiful, et cetera, et cetera. You want me to make a decision that might involve my grandchildren dying and some, you know, thousands of miles away because it's morally correct. Not somebody like me. Well, it's, it's you know, I'm very hopeful. Uh, and I know you are too. That that we are going to rectify ourselves, and that we are going to recognize that we are all connected, and that we are all one. I love your philosophy of what you talk about. Um, apparently, I should have been born in the East because my uh, my um, philosophies go a lot more along the lines of of the Eastern philosophy rather than the Western philosophy. Cause I, you know, I think that we're all one and that we all need to take care of each other and we all need to live together in peace and harmony as best that we can. And that eventually we're going to get to a point where we're, people are going to rise up and not take what they've been taking for so long. I hope. Well, well here's, the, here's the difference between our points of view. Cause you use the word we, 
you're very upbeat, enthusiastic and all these kinds of things. I'm much more cynical when it comes to people, but I do have faith in the divines. Like I was talking before about the story of Joseph and about the whole idea of Mac playing chess with Magnus Carlsen. I trust the divine and the divine, however it works, is going to work it out in such a way you say, I hope you're right, that people will come to the realization. I accept, maybe they will and maybe they won't, but there's somebody who knows more who's going to make sure things happen the way they need to happen. And that's where I put my faith. And I agree with you. And your faith belongs there, and that's where it should be. I think that the instrument that the divine is going to use is people. Um, And not that we are going to think about that and come up with it all by ourselves. We need the divine guidance in order to get that done. But I really think that and things like your book, by the way, the theology for the rest of us, uh, Arthur Yavelberg.com is where you want to go. And you spell that Y A V E L B E R G.com and go to his website his, his, he's got some light reading. He's got some fun stuff. It's 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 a great it's a great website and it's a great book. And you should, well, if you want to, I I think it's a great read and it should be something that should be on your list. Well, so thank that, you. But, that's, that's very kind of you. I'm, I'm and, glad that you you took the time to read it. I've been on some broadcasts and it's been real clear to me from the start. They have no idea what I wrote. <laughs> they have no clue. <laughs> And it's fine, you know, they're running. I'm sure you have the same headache in terms of a lot of different guests do a lot of different things. And it's hard to keep up to date and all the rest of it. I appreciate the fact that you know about the website, that there's light reading on it and that kind of thing. Because it tells me you did your homework and you care enough to prepare. Not everybody does that. I know, really people do what they can do. Yep, that's it. But I really enjoy, see, the thing is, is that I enjoy your work. I enjoy your your spirit, your honesty, and 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 also your learnedness, because you you've been in. You're a very learned man, and you've taken this book. You've taken it and really put your heart and soul into it, so that other people. Because Arthur, there are lots of folks that are out there going. Oh, I don't know. I think that I don't know what to think. I don't. This doesn't make any sense to me, and this doesn't. I don't have a theology. I, I, I don't believe what the guy at the pulpit is saying all the time. And I want to have something that I can personally believe in and that, I, that, that really makes sense to me, that I can take hold of. This book will help them do that. And that's why I think it's great that you wrote it. I, I appreciate that. And, and, the, and part of the message really is, yeah, if I can do it, you can do it. You know, there's this thing, you know, about um, it, it learned is, is a good word for it because I'm not smarter. I'm learned in the sense that I've had experiences and I've taken those experiences and things I've read and people I've talked to and worked at it and incorporated it into a spiritual view that works for me. If I can do it, anybody can do it because everybody has had experiences and everybody is in touch with that part of them that knows that there's something else. You have to give it permission, you have to cultivate it, but it's there. If I can do it, it's, that's why it's for the rest of us. It's not for the elite, it's not for the people who are already saints or bodhisattvas or anything like that. 
It really is for the rest of us because we can all do it. And I'm a firm believer that is, as part of our human experience, as becoming more spiritual, it is our obligation to ourselves to find that and not listen to what somebody else tells you, either in a book or off the, you know, the pulpit. It's up to you in your heart to determine what it is for you. And if you ask that over time, it will be revealed to you. That's my belief. No, no, I, I, I agree with you 100%. And there are, tr- there are leaders, Martin Luther in the West, the Buddha in the East, they all say the same thing. Martin Luther will say, you have to read the Bible for yourself. It's not just for the experts. It's not just for the priests to tell you what it means. You have to read it for yourself. The Buddha says, be ye lamps unto yourselves. If what I say makes sense to you, great. If it doesn't make sense to you, go someplace else. The key to knowing who you're talking to, whether they're trustworthy or not, to what extent do they want you to do what they want you to do? Or to what extent do they want you to do what you need to do? If the focus is on them, go someplace else. I couldn't couldn't agree more. By the way, we've been talking with Arthur. And I'm, I'm, can you say your last name just in case I screwed it up? No, you didn't. Yavelberg is fine. Yavelberg, and uh, he's written the book, The Theology for the Rest of Us. Go to ArthurYavelberg.com. And I want to thank you, sir, for being here. It's thank you for having great. me. I really appreciate the, the divine and the universe bringing us together. It's been a pleasure. It, it, and, you know, you at the, the start of the show, you started to talk about, you know, the, my enthusiasm or whatever it is. I can be tired as hell. I can be in a bad mood. And then I do one of these interviews and I am supercharged up and I'm raring to go. And that tells me that I'm on the right path. You're tapping into that divine. You really are tapping into that divine energy. You know, materialists will call it adrenaline and some chemical, whatever. But you're tapping into that source that animates everything. It's just like taking advantage of the laws of gravity. It's a field you tap into, and that's what you're doing. You're like a lightning rod for this kind of energy, and it comes out. You become a conduit for it. It's great. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Again, Arthur Yavelberg, and go to his website, ArthurYavelberg.com. Buy the book from his website. That would be fun. It's cheaper, um, and, too. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Well, good. Well, and you get more of the proceeds, so that's that's yeah. important too. So, and thank you again for being here. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we go? You know, I, I just wish everybody luck. I mean, one of the nice things about having been on the planet for as, as many years as I have, I have no axe to grind. I have no hidden agenda. Whatever it is, it is. You know, there's. I'm not gonna. I can't get fired. You know, I'm retired. You know. <laughs> There's there's nothing I'm there's nothing surreptitious there's no conspiracy theory here. This is it. You like it? Great. You don't like it? Find something else that's better. If I can be of help to anybody, great. That's that's the only thing. There's no hidden agenda. If I, Abraham Lincoln said, you know, if I was, you know, Stephen Douglas in the Stephen Douglas Lincoln debates called him two faced, and Lincoln the answer says. If I had another face, do you think I would use this one? <laughs> it's true. There's no hidden This is it. You like it, great. You don't like it, that's fine. Look someplace else. But go find it for yourself. Don't right. don't depend upon somebody else to tell you right. what to believe. Discover right. it for yourself. That's the, right. that's the key. 
So okay. thank you, Arthur. If you wait right there, I'll be right back. That's hey, great. thanks for enjoying this episode all the way to the end. Please give us a like and subscribe to this channel. This has been a production of PositiveTalkRadio.net. Please visit our website, oddly named PositiveTalkRadio.net, for more details about us and our mission, which is to provide great positive programming designed to inspire us all. I'm Kevin McDonald, and I'm proud of these shows, and I truly hope that you'll like them and share them with friends and family. So on behalf of our entire team, remember, be kind to one another because each other's all we got.